Hey, I just want to say how cool it is to have you in the room. Uh, it just means so much to me as a pastor to know that there are people who care enough about the Word of God to come out another night so that we can spend some time just kind of digging a little deeper and uh, just seeing what God would teach us. So I just honor you. Thank you for being here and for being part of this. And uh, it's a lot of fun for me. I hope it's fun uh, for you guys. Uh, If you were here on Sunday, you heard us uh, talking about uh, the fact that our giving to the Purple Chairs is up, and it has been, and just want to say thank you to you guys for that, and thank you for the church as a whole for going there. And then you also heard us announce that we're uh, trying to build a fund uh, through our, our financial leaders to be a matching fund for our November 22nd offering. And so we were, we were doing some of our final tabulations today, and we were hoping to get, I think, $250,000, so it was half of the 500000 And as of the close of business today, we were at $275,000 from our leaders. Yeah. So that's super, super cool. So I'm, I'm just going to ask you to be in prayer that our church will respond to this moment and say, wow, my dollar can be $2, and if, if a small fraction of our people could come up with half of it, then surely the rest of us can come up with the rest of it and uh, get ourselves back on track on the deal. And then the other thing that's happening right now as far as the building project is that literally uh, this week, uh, one of the banks, we're talking to two banks, but one of the banks, the one probably that we're most intrigued and interested in, is taking our packet to kind of their preliminary approval board, and we're going to get word back on that as to where we stand uh, in the process of getting that loan, uh, which if they come back positive, uh, it could be very, very quickly that we could get all that finalized. And right now we're talking about a really good interest rate. So all of that super, super positive. So here's what I thought we would do as we get started tonight. I thought we'd just take a moment and pray about that and ask the Lord who we serve to be in that meeting when they hold it. So let's stand up, we'll pray, and then uh, we'll dig into the Word. Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, we, we come before you, and, and you know, you know that our absolute desire in building these buildings is about you and about making you famous and about changing our entire community for the name of Jesus and that we are just absolutely committed to making as big a dent in this world as we possibly can. So God, we're just going to ask you to attend that meeting. We're going to ask you to uh, move the hearts of those that would sit around that table and uh, that God, that they would uh, go to the very limits of what they're possible to do and maybe even beyond. And that God, they would bring us a favorable interest rate and they would uh, allow us to do the full scope of this building. And so we just pray that, uh, that it would bring honor and glory to you. And then we pray for ourselves tonight, Lord, that you'd open our hearts, help us to understand your word in a new and fresh and exciting way. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if I'm remembering right, I think we got to Romans, through Romans chapter four, and I think we got through verse 12. Does that sound right to everybody in the room? Yes? Okay. All right, so we're going to pick up uh, then in verse 13. So Romans chapter 4, verse 13, uh, here's what it says. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir to the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And if you remember, as we were talking uh, last week, this, this chapter is a huge turning point 
in Paul's discussion with Jewish uh, people in this idea of moving from their dependence on the law to putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's argument is, guys, it was never the law that was getting us to heaven. The only thing the law ever did was expose our sin. It helped us understand why we needed a Savior, but the law was never going to get us where we needed to go. It simply told us we weren't getting there. And then Paul comes back and argues based on two huge pillars of the Jewish faith, uh, the life of Abraham, and he says, you realize Abraham, by faith, before he ever received the covenant, before he ever, ever went in and, and actually started that first symbolic thing of the law, which was circumcision, he believed by faith that the promise of God was going to be fulfilled. And so he argues by faith, your father, the father of Judaism, was commended to God. And then he comes back and says, and by the way, your favorite king, a guy by the name of David, writes in the Psalms about how blessed a man is whose sins are not remembered, but instead his sins are washed away because of his belief in God. And so Paul is arguing at this moment saying, guys, it's never, it's never been a works-based thing. It's never been about obeying a set of rules. It has always been about putting our faith in God, okay? So back to the passage. Uh, verse uh, 15, because the law brings wrath, in other words, the law exposes my shortcomings and therefore brings punishment, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. So he says, there was actually people living outside the law who didn't have the laws of Moses, and they weren't necessarily held accountable to those laws because they did not have them. Verse 16, therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham. He is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Now, how is Paul arguing this? Because I thought Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. So how did Paul argue that Abraham was actually the father of many nations? Which actually was the prophecy, if you remember. Yep, okay, so microphone runner right back there, there you go. Run, 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 run. Okay, there we go. I think Paul would say that the Gentiles through Christ Abraham becomes their father as well. Okay, he's, you got to the right answer, we're getting there on the wrong path. He had other children. You remember he had a child before he had Isaac. So is that how he's saying he became the father of many nations? Yep. Uh, he had a child with Haggai, who was the leader of the Arab nations. So he's also the leader of the Arab nations. Okay, say it again. I didn't hear all of it. He had a child with Haggai, his hand to hand yep. maiden, and yep. Haggai would be the leader of the Arab nations. Yep. Which is now 
Islamic nations. Yeah. So he does. If you remember the story of Abraham, remember Sarah comes to Abraham kind of midway through this journey and says, Abraham, you know, actually the promise was given to you. And, and I don't remember if God specifically said that it had to be me that was going to be the one. So take my handmaid, Hagar, and sleep with her, and you can have a son through her. You remember that part of the story? And uh, Hagar ends up having a, a son. His name is Ishmael. And uh, Ishmael ends up, as best we can tell, being the father of the Arab nations, which is interesting because from that moment forward, the sons of Hagar have always fought with the son of Sarah. Isn't that interesting? And the battle goes on even today. Is that how uh, Paul is arguing that Abraham is the father of many nations? Which actually, that was probably not his best moment, right? Definitely not Sarah's best moment. Wasn't it through a covenant or a promise God made to Abraham that all people who believed and fell into that covenant with Abraham, he became the father of them? Yeah, I don't know that he specifically says that as he makes the covenant, but you and I, you and I are going to come to that conclusion that everybody who comes to faith is now going to come under that. Okay, one more, and then I'll, if we can't get it there, then I'll try to nudge us there. Scripture okay, is pretty to. clear in this. Genesis 17, 5, and I will change your name from Abram and call you Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. Yep. I didn't get any clearer than that. Yeah, so what we're asking is, how does he become the father of many nations, though? It's because he had faith. Because he had faith. Okay, so here's what Paul is going to argue. You ready for this? Abraham's faith, and we talked about this just a little bit last week, he demonstrated his faith before he was circumcised. So before he was officially Jewish. So Abraham had faith when he was technically what? A Gentile. So they're saying, hey, here is Abraham having faith while he's still technically not a Jew yet, and then he has faith after he becomes a Jew. And by his faith, by his example of faith, he is now the father of all who have faith. Okay? Nod so I feel better. Just to go, yeah, okay. Yeah. All, right, all right, all right, good. Okay, all right, we can move on then. Okay. Lynn? Yeah. If you go to, if you go to Matthew 5, and look at verses 23 and 24, where it talks about when you go to lay your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Yeah. Uh, that, we're to, that we're to drop the gift off, go back and be reconciled to the brother. God is saying there, I believe, and, and, and through all of this, that God values heart relationships far above the outward trappings of religion. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going we're gonna to get that over and over again as we go through the book of Romans, that it's, ne it's never been about the duty of religion. It has always been about the condition of the heart. Yep. Okay. All right. So back to the passage. Uh, verse 16 ends with, he is the father of us all. Verse 17, uh, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father. Uh, <clears throat> He is our Father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, 
the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. What does that phrase mean when it says, God calls things that are not as if they were? Can you get it to her? Just like throw the mic and she'll catch it and… He can speak things into existence. Hmm. Okay. What else are we thinking? Um, How about he's foretelling things to come? Say it again. He's foretelling things to come. He's foretelling things to come. Yeah, and I think that's probably the closer place to it, is that it's saying he realized that God has the capacity to look ahead in time and see things that have not happened yet as if they're actually occurring. So therefore, he can talk about things that are yet to be as if they are because those things are in front of him. So let me see if I can help you with this. You and I, you and I, when we see things, we see something that's right in front of us. And we experience that thing that we see because it is right in front of us. The moment you and I leave the room, because you and I are trapped in time and we're trapped in proximity, this thing is no longer in front of us and we're no longer experiencing it. Does that make sense? So therefore, this would be our past because we left the room. Does that make sense so far? God is outside of time. Time and proximity are absolutely, have no hold on God whatsoever, which means, in contrast to us, God sees everything that has ever happened in the past, everything that is happening in the present, and everything that will happen in the future are forever in front of him in the same way that this drum set is in front of me. He sees them all, and he experiences them all instantly because he is outside of time and he is outside of proximity, which means he is today still experiencing you as a child, and he is today experiencing you on your deathbed. He is still experiencing Abraham, and he is experiencing children who have not been born yet because everything is always and forever in front of God constantly, which is why he can look and say, oh, I know exactly how that turns out, because it is forever in front of him. God has never guessed because he has always seen it and always experienced it. Yep. All right, so about him, um, what's it called? Um, when, before I came to Christ, yeah. I was dead. And when I came to Christ, it wasn't by my calling, it was by his. God chose me, I didn't choose him. So he called me to life, and then I got life through Jesus Christ. Okay, I, I, fall, I, I would agree with you on most of that. Well, what I miss. <laughs> you, you missed, you missed free will. 
Well, but it was him calling me and then me choosing to receive that call and to go forward with it. Right. It's he chose me. I didn't choose. It's not my saving doesn't come by me choosing him. It's him calling me, then me taking the choice to accept Christ. So I don't think that's accurate. So um, go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 10, it says, He, speaking of Jesus Christ, was in the world, and though the world was made by, through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, talking about the Jewish nation, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So they're believing before they're the children. It's free will. They're making a choice to believe. And God honors that choice to believe. Oh, it's, def it's definitely free will. But huh? I said, yes, it's, de it's definitely, you know, we definitely have free will. It's our choice to come to God. But it, it's him, he calls us, he chose us. And then we answer the call, correct? First Peter. <clears throat> Second Peter. Second Peter. Okay, so when you, when you say, hey, God chose us, how many did he choose? So I'm, I'm asking the question, how, how many did he choose when God chose us? Okay, so if God chose all, how come all don't come? Because it's free will. It's free will. Matter of fact, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So clearly the Bible says the will of God is that every person would come to repentance, and yet free will plays in there. He will not violate my free will. So I would argue the call goes to all, but only some receive the call. Only some choose to respond to the call. Yep. This is First uh, Peter 1, 1 and 2. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Pithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkling of his blood. So to me, this sounds like he... It's to God's elect who have been chosen. I, I don't think it's easy. So, I'll, and we're actually going to get to some of this because Romans 9 is going to take us there in a little while. All I'm, all I'm suggesting to you, and we, we don't want to go too far because we're going to get there in process, is that foreknowledge is not causative. In other words, just because God knows something doesn't mean that it has to happen. 
He happens to know it because it will happen. So foreknowledge does not cause it to happen, and yet he has perfect foreknowledge of what will happen. Okay. Another place I have trouble with this is in Romans later when it says that God chose um, fair, fair, sure. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. I, so you're gonna you're gonna hang on because we're gonna get to that chapter in Romans right. and it'll it'll unpack really well for you. Looking forward to it. Good. All right. Okay. So in what you guys, some of you that are listening in and kind of going back and forth, and, and uh, what you're hearing is is that you're hearing a debate that's gone on in Christianity now for almost 2,000 years. Uh, depending on uh, yeah, if you mark it with John Calvin or not. Anyways, uh, so it's this idea of when a person comes to be saved, are they saved because God chose them to be saved? And so because he chose them, that's caused them to believe. Or are people saved because God called, but then they chose to respond? So it's the argument of free will versus the sovereignty of God. Did God make us become Christians, or did we choose to be Christians? And this debate has gone on for years and years and years and years within Christianity, okay? And so that's what you're hearing us do a little bit of. Okay, moving on. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm no Arminianist, but it says in Ephesians 1:4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, the beloved. One of the things, when you adopt, you get to choose. Okay. But he, he predestined us to the adoption of sons, right? So it's a legal term. And yet, Scripture over and over again talks about me actually being born again into the family. So all he's saying is he provided a legal place for you as you came into the family. He's not saying that he forced you to be in the family. You've, you, the reality, guys, we're going to get there, so you don't, you don't want to preempt it. But there's so much scripture that goes on both sides of this that you've got to, you've got to go through it cleanly and then come out with something that works theologically on both sides of this argument. Okay? All right. Okay, I see where you're going with this, um, but in the context of... <laughs> that's good, because I'm not sure, but that's good. Uh, that's but good. I see uh, in, in the, the context of these verses, um, with Abraham and uh, his faith and his obedience to the Lord, it goes back to Genesis 15, 6, and God seeing Abraham as righteous before him. This is all encapsulates um, the covenant between Abraham and God and being Abraham being called out among the nations and the father of the nations based on that covenant that God created with him in 17.5 and the chapter 17. Um, so, I, and I just, my question is then, is that what you're referring to here, is, is alluding to that covenant that was created between Abraham and God, because we do have that, those stand on those same promises as well, but um, is that kind of where you're going a little bit with with where we're going in the discussion? Ask me that again, because I didn't, I wasn't able to follow all of that that you did. So say, say, say that, say that more simply, because I'm a simple guy. <laughs> um, in the context of the verses that we're reading, yep. it goes back to, it references back to Genesis and that covenant that was made between Abraham and God based upon the fact that 
God viewed Abraham as righteous and obedient and then being the father of the nations, are you, are you alluding to and going to reference that covenant that was made that we also stand on as chosen before the Lord, chosen children, that we also stand in that covenant as well in the context of this verse? Hmm. I'm not, I'm not even sure I've totally tracked. So we may have to talk afterward. But actually, I should say that loud. I can't talk afterwards tonight. I've got, I've got to leave for tonight. But we ought to talk maybe if I don't answer that question for you. I'm not trying to say that Christians are somehow brought into the Jewish covenant. And I'm not saying that we are now Israel. I'm not saying that at all. I think that's a, there are some Christians who believe that, that the church is now Israel. And I think that's a theological mistake. I think over and over and over again in Scripture, you see the very clear distinction between the church and the nation of Israel being separate. All I'm saying is, is that Abraham is arguing that Abraham had faith while he was still a Gentile, and Abraham had faith after he was a Jew, and that that faith has always been the path to come to God, and that it's never through doing works, and that he models it for us maybe is a better way of saying it on the deal. Okay, we're good? All right, let's keep going. We will get to chapter 9, and uh, we will unpack some of this stuff. Um, 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, so he'd already passed the age of childbearing, um, and, and, the, and apparently the ability uh, to do what he needed to do to participate in childbearing. And since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Now, there's an interesting phrase there. It says he was delivered over to death for our sins. So the idea here is, is that as Jesus hangs on the cross, he's paying for our sins, but he was raised to life for our justification. What is justification besides a Bible word? How would you define justification? No longer guilty. Okay. Any other definitions? What? To show or prove right or re okay. All right. Just as if I never sinned. And I, I think actually that just as if I never sinned is actually a pretty good definition. Some theologians struggle with that and, and don't like that definition because they say, it's not just like you never sinned because someone had to pay for it, and you, you don't want to minimize what Jesus did on the cross. But I, I don't think by saying justification is Jesus 
making it just as if I ever sinned does anything to minimize the cross. Matter of fact, it helps me personally to understand the cross because I know that I couldn't justify myself. Okay? So, again, this word justification simply comes along the idea of making right or righteous just as if I never sinned. So that you and I, the moment we accept Jesus as our Savior, become 100% holy in the eyes of God. Justified. Isn't that interesting? Because how many people in this room would say, hey, I, I accepted Jesus, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm holy. I, I have never sinned again. Anybody want to make that claim? So, how can the Bible then say that you and I have been justified when you and I know that that isn't necessarily the case of our experience? Okay. All right, so get him the mic because that was a pretty good statement. All right, so say yours. No, I was going to say I think justification occurs by what Jesus did on the cross and taking our sins and shielding or taking away all of our sins from us, but then there's a period of sanctification that comes after we're justified. Mm -hmm. Okay, but actually, this, and I, I like what you said, and, and part of it's very, very accurate in the idea that we're all in that process of being sanctified right now, of growing holier and holier and more righteous. But actually, it's interesting because the phrase in the passage here says, uh, verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. And that somehow his resurrection has a huge impact on our justification, okay? All right, so let's back it up. How is it possible for God to say, you're justified, it's as if you never sinned, you stand before me 100% righteous, and yet you and I know we're not experiencing righteousness? Am I on? Yeah, yep. okay. So it gets back to um, verse 17 that we talked about earlier. And I, I thought about it as Jesus, or God sees us through Jesus mm. as perfect even now, even though we're not perfect, so he sees us as we'll be perfect in eternity. Yeah, okay. And so again, what, the, and part, what we're saying, and we've picked up the pieces so far, one is because God sees who I will be, right? Remember we said that all of you is always before God, which means you in your resurrected body standing in front of him in heaven God is already experiencing that of you because all of you is always before God at all times. So he sees the completed work in you today. Does that make sense? The second piece of this is simply this. It's a legal term, and it's saying legally because Jesus has paid the price, and even though right now you haven't experienced all the benefits of that yet, you just need to know that everything's already been put in the bank and on deposit for you, and therefore, the bill has been paid, you stand 100% paid for and righteous, and your legal standing before God is one of absolute purity and righteousness, because it's already in the bank. It's already done. Yep. Because 
not only through Jesus, because it was actually himself as an incarnation of the triple Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He already knew that you were going to commit the sins. So he knew that he had to sacrifice something that was worth it in order to accept you as his own family, yep. basically, and allow you to be with him in eternity. Yep. He took his own life by his own children, yep. basically. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, you realize that all of your sins were placed on him, even the sins you're going to commit tomorrow were placed on him then and were paid for then, which is why he can credit justification and righteousness to you now, even though you haven't experienced it fully yet. People's minds are going, doo 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 doo. Yep. Isn't this concept? concept of justification that Jesus who is raised to be with yeah. the Father is now standing in front of the Father and justifying you as holy because of his work on the cross. So yeah, the because of being at, reconciled with the Father he is, because when, when I think of justification, you're justifying someone's behavior or something to someone, and so Jesus returned to the Father, became one with, obviously, and then justifies you as holy in front of the Father at that moment based on his work. Yeah, I, I probably, rather than using the term justifies our behavior, because it sounds like then he's making excuses for our behavior, it's this idea that says, because I'm in Jesus, God always sees me through the blood of his son. He always, he always sees me having been washed by, this, by his but son's blood. it's Jesus blood. that does that. Right? Yes, when Jesus. Jesus, from the dead, Jesus goes and is with the Father yep. and justifies you through His work. Yep. Absolutely. Right here. Okay. <laughs> um, the justification thing is that God required a sacrifice of death for our sins. Yep. And when Jesus provided that, he went back to God and said, I paid for their sins, past, present, and future. It's not on them anymore because I've paid what you acquired. Right. And I, so this gets us to the second part of the passage that says, we were justified by his resurrection, right? It says, uh, we were justified uh, at, because he was raised from the dead. How does his resurrection play into our justification? Okay, so his life was sacrificed, okay, which it says, right, so watch, he was delivered over to death for our sins. There's the sacrifice. And was raised to life for our justification. Why does the resurrection of Jesus Christ have such a pivotal part in you and me knowing that we are justified. There's a hand right there. Okay, why does his resurrection give you and I hope for eternity? We know that he beat death, so we have the hope of when we die, we will die to this life, but we will have a resurrected body and be with him in heaven. 
Okay, and, and, and that's true. It's, I don't, just don't know it's the question I'm asking. All right, so let me ask it differently. Maybe I can help us get there. What if the reverse had happened? What if somebody had said to you, hey, Jesus died on the cross for you to pay for your sins, but he never rose again? What question would that bring up if the resurrection hadn't happened? Okay, there's no proof that it's from God. But let's, let's say we accept that. We say, okay, we, you know, we think Jesus went to the cross. We think that he went there to pay for our sins, but he never rose. There's no victory. There you go. See, what you're going to wonder is, was Jesus' payment enough? See, in, in other words, I get that he went to the cross. I get that he died for my sins, but was the payment complete? Or maybe he just made a deposit. You know, maybe he just made a payment toward the end. But what does the resurrection tell you? He must have paid it in full because he no longer had to experience death, right? So the bill had to have been paid all the way in order for Jesus to be alive again, which is also why Scripture emphasizes so clearly that the Father raised him so that you knew the Father accepted the payment and that the payment was finished. And it's why it says here his resurrection speaks to our justification so that you and I can sit with confidence and say, you know what? He didn't just pay for some of my sins. He paid for all of my sins, and his resurrection proves that the bill was paid in full. Okay? So it's a good answer. Yeah. Okay, so bring the mic down because I can hear him, but everybody else can't hear him. And he's going to say something really important. To me, the resurrection... <laughs> proves that he has power over the enemy life Absolutely. and our sins. Absolutely. So we're justified because we have hope and faith in him. Yeah, the resurrection, and the, you realize, guys, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of our faith. Uh, you know, we don't just celebrate Easter because it's kind of got lilies and bunny rabbits and say, we celebrate Easter because literally it is the distinguishing moment of our faith. Because A, no other, no other religion can make the claim uh, but secondly, it literally takes everything that was a problem and it's solved in the cross and then the subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and if it didn't happen, if it, if it doesn't occur, then you and I are left without hope. Yeah. And because he was blameless and because he was spotless and because he had the power and God resurrected him, and because we are fully justified and complete, like any other court order that has been handed down by the judge, we cannot lose it. Right. And he is, it is done, and there's nothing that we can do to lose that. And I think that is something that we grasp in this, in this context here, is that we, when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ, when we take on that calling and we have been justified, we can't lose it. Therefore, we, out of full obedience, need to lay that all down before the Lord. Yeah, there's an can't. amazing passage in Hebrews 6 for what you're saying. In Hebrews 6 that says, if it were possible that you had a sin that did not get covered by Jesus on the cross? In other words, sometimes you'll run into Christians that say, hey, when I got saved, Jesus forgave my past, and he forgave whatever sins I'd committed up till that day, to the moment I asked Jesus in my heart. But then the next day, you know, I lied. So now I've got to ask Jesus to forgive my lie, and, and you know, I lost my salvation when that happened. And Hebrews 6 says, if that's possible, if it's possible for you to have a sin that wasn't covered by the death of Jesus on the cross, do you realize what you're saying is, 
that Jesus would have to go back to the cross and die for your new sin because apparently he didn't cover it the first time. But if you believe that Jesus covered all your sins the day he died on the cross, then it's impossible to lose your salvation because all your sins are paid for. Does that make sense? All right. Okay, were you running just for fun or did we have a question? Okay. John 3.16. Yeah. Actually, would that, would that help? Because uh, I thought that there was uh, some sort of miscommunication about whether or not if you believe or whether you were born in or whatever. Well, John 3.16 pretty much uh, states the whole thing. It says, so he, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, which again was a part of him, so that whosoever believeth in him. Mm. So not only just the fact that he had died and then gotten resurrected, but also all the other miracles that he had worked and all of everything that he was saying, whoever believeth should uh, not perish, but have everlasting life. Yeah. I'm good. All right, hey, believe it or not, think about this, we just beat chapter four, which is amazing that we've made it that far, and now we can jump into chapter five. How much time do we have? 12 minutes, so we're gonna, we're gonna get tons done here. All right, here we go. Hang on. All right, so here's what we're going to try and do. Uh, let's see if we can get through maybe the next 11 verses real quick uh, because verse 12 starts this incredible, really, really exciting conversation. So let's see if, if we can get that far in, or not. All right, here we go. Uh, verse 1, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since you have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. What is grace? What is it? Okay, so unmerited favor, some of us said. What else? God's riches at Christ's expense. Getting what you don't deserve. It's all grace. Um, if you and I were going to put this in a probably more secular term, it's kindness. It's God being kind. It's God doing something for us for no good reason other than he likes us. It's kindness. Okay? So... Let's read it again. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace through, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace, this kind thing that God has done for us in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Did you read that? Let me read that again. Not only so. In other words, we're not, just, we're not just thankful for the good things and the kind things that God did for us. We actually rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. What's perseverance? Perseverance. 
stamina, stick to itiveness. See, there isn't in the reality when when you finally discover as a Christian that being a Christian doesn't mean that everything turns out roses, that being a Christian doesn't mean you win the lottery every week, that all of a sudden you have to say, hey, whoa, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You you mean this following Jesus thing is a lot of work? Yeah. You you mean sometimes being a Christian is harder than being a non-Christian? Yeah. And you're gonna have to make a decision in that moment. Hey, am I in or am I not in? And when you decide you're in, when you say, hey, no, 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 I meant it when I said it, and I believe this thing, and I'm going to do it, then all of a sudden, you got to go down into low gear, right? you got to kind of buckle up and grit your teeth and say, okay, I'm going to stay faithful to this, and I'm going to follow Jesus, even though it hurts a little bit right now. And he says, hey, when you and I struggle, when things get a little bit hard, now God is developing perseverance in your life. He's he's developing grit in your life, spiritual grit. Knowing that our sufferings because we rejoice because we know that, the, that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces what? Character, what is character? Integrity? I've heard someone say character is who I am when no one's watching. See, when, when no one can see you do it, would you still do the right thing? If you were never, never, gonna, never, ever going to get caught and no one would ever know, would you still do the right thing simply because it was right? And how you answer that speaks to your character. Do you run the left-hand arrow thing because everybody else is doing it? That's pet peeve, but that's okay. All right, all right. <clears throat> and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Now, watch this. You see that at just the right time, We were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. So he says, you realize when we still didn't like God, when we still thought God was a joke, when we, when we, we, we thought God was, was just an invention of someone's imagination, when, when we were living our lives carelessly, God still looked at you and me with love and was willing to die so that you would have a shot at heaven. Verse seven, verily, very rarely uh, will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might possibly dare to die. So here's what he's saying, he says, look, you gonna die for someone else? I mean, if, if, if someone came in and they stood here with a machine gun right now and they said, okay, it's, it's you or him, which one do I shoot? Paul's just simply saying, most of the time you and I are going to go. You know, the guy next, yeah. He says, but you know what? There's a chance, there's a chance that if somebody was your good friend, you know, had been, you know, maybe, 
maybe if you really cared about them, they'd you know, been kind of a lifelong relationship, you, you might, you might consider dying for your good friend. Verse 8, but God demonstrated His love for us while you and I were still sinners. Christ died for us. While you and I still hated him, while you and I still thought he was a joke, while you and I still had no room in our lives for him, he was willing to die for us. And Paul says, do you realize how remarkable that is? Because you probably wouldn't have done the same. Since, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And just real quick, how did we get justified? Through his... Since we've been now been justified by his blood, the resurrection proved our justification. The blood made our justification. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> Since we have now been justified by his blood, here's why that's important, guys. If it's the blood of Jesus Christ that justifies us, then any man-made religion that does not have the death of Jesus Christ on the cross paying for your sins is therefore a false religion because it is only the blood of Jesus Christ that justifies us. So the minute someone says, hey, join our church or recite our little saying that we have or go into this little box and whatever that is, get baptized. They are telling you something besides the blood of Jesus is justifying you. And what did scripture just say? The blood of Jesus. See, every man-made religion in the world says, we will give you a set of rules and help you find God. Jesus said, you'll never find God until you find me. And it's not about rules. It's about giving up. It's a completely different way of thinking than any man-made religion out there. Okay, let's see if we can get there. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What's reconciliation? Be made right with. So have you talk, heard about like couples that are getting a divorce and then they go through a reconciliation, right? And really that's kind of the sense here. You and I were at odds with God. You and I were on the outs with God. And through Jesus, we've been reconciled in the relationship. See, what did Adam lose in the garden for us? Adam knew the presence of God, and we lost it. He gave it away. And you and I who know Christ for the first time now have that relationship restored. 
we've been reconciled to our Heavenly Father. It's a really cool moment. Okay, so I think we're done on time, right? That's where the, huh? I had 12. I have eight minutes, is that true? All right, all right, okay. Wow, I was trying so hard to land it and then you just told me that I missed the aircraft carrier. All right, okay. All right, let's see if we can get into these next few. We're only going to probably get part. Oh, you got, okay, question. Yep. Is this an eight-minute question? It's a, that would help. All right. I just, I just want to get your take on then basically what about the people who um, obviously who don't know Jesus hmm. um, in terms of we're talking about everybody yes. who was saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, yep. all his people. What, what's your take on those people who don't know him by, I don't know, just don't know him, either maybe through a different religion yeah. and or the people who we talked about earlier, free will, just choose not to believe in him. What is their, okay. are they still saved? So good question. All right, so let's go to our friends, John three sixteen. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You know, it's really, it's really interesting, guys, that we read John 3.16 so much, and we don't read the verse above and read the verse below. Because when you do, I mean, this, this just gets super, 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 super clear. Here we go. John chapter 3, we'll start in verse 15. Okay? We'll just read it real slow and let it sink in. That everyone who, next word, believes... That everyone who believes in, next word, him, not in Buddha, not in Muhammad, not in Scientology, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in, next word, him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through, next word, him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus also said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that it leads to eternal life. And what was he talking about that narrow way being? Him. Him, which is, which when that sinks in, guys, when that takes root in you, it's all of a sudden why you go, oh my goodness, then inviting my neighbor is a big deal because until my neighbor figures out Jesus, my neighbor's lost. It's why all of a sudden you go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, going to Kenya and doing what we do there or going to India and doing what we do is a big deal because people who don't know our Jesus are lost.
And you and I have been given the unbelievable privilege of telling his story. But what happens if you and I go silent? And this is a big deal. Yep. What about the people who once believed but have since fallen away, hardened their hearts, no longer believe? Okay. All right. So how many are interested in that answer? A couple of us. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So real quick, go with me to Ephesians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 13, here's what it says. Uh, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, okay, so now I just believed, I just became a Christian. The moment I became a Christian, the Bible says you were marked in him with a what? Seal. So get the moment, the Bible's saying the moment I became a Christian, God placed a seal on me. That's what it said, right? You were marked in with the seal. The seal was the promised Holy Spirit. So the moment I became a Christian, God gave me the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sealed me. Who is a deposit, the Holy Spirit is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance till the redemption of those who are God's possession. So what's the redemption day? When do you and I get finally redeemed? Heaven. See, the day we stand in heaven, new bodies in the presence of God as the children of God, completely forgiven, completely justified, completely holy, that's redemption day. And the Bible says the moment you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit sealed you till you would see that day of redemption. Okay? Matter of fact, let's go one step further. It says the Holy Spirit was given as a deposit guaranteeing you would get there. All right, how many have ever gone to the rental yard and rented like a ditch witch or something from the rental yard? Okay, when you went to the rental yard and rented the ditch witch, they made you give them a deposit. And the idea of the deposit was, if you don't bring back the ditch witch, what, guess what they were gonna do with your deposit? They were gonna keep it. So think about this for a second. The Bible just said, that God gave you the Holy Spirit when you got saved as a deposit guaranteeing heaven. Which means, think about this, if God doesn't give you heaven, guess what you get to keep? The Holy Spirit. Which the last time I checked, the Holy Spirit is God. He's part of the Trinity. So that means you could foreclose on God. So the answer is, and the reason he, he did such a wild, crazy thing is he just said, I'm just telling you, it will never, 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 never not happen. And I'm swearing upon myself that once you become a believer, you will see heaven. I'll give myself the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing you make it to the day of redemption. Yep. So I don't have to worry about my brother-in-law who became a Mormon? No. <clears throat> All you have to worry about is uh, what uh, Hebrews says, that when we 
move away from the Lord, when we begin to do things we shouldn't do, God begins to spank. And so there may be spanking in his life at this point. But no, once a child, always a child. Matter of fact, guys, the prodigal son tells this story, right? Remember Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son says to his dad, I don't want to be with you anymore. I hate all of your rules. I'm going to go out and do everything you didn't ever want me to do, dad. Remember he goes and lives in just unbelievable, unrighteous living. And where in the story did he stop being the son? Never. Matter of fact, the Bible says the father stood there waiting for the son, and when the son was still a long way off, he said, look, my son is coming home, right? So the son still hadn't even confessed yet. The son was still way down the road, and dad's going, man, my son's coming home, okay? He never stopped being the son, even though he was living in disobedience. Why? We already covered it tonight. Think about it for a minute. Why did he not stop being the son? Why do you and I not lose our salvation? Okay, it's grace. But remember, remember the whole justified thing? Didn't it say that you and I were already made holy before God, even though we haven't experienced it yet? Because God already sees us at the end. And so even though you and I stumble in between, he sees us at the end. Always. Because he always sees us through the blood of Jesus. Yep. So here's a question I get from non-believers when I'm trying to persuade them that Jesus is the only way. Yeah. Is, is what about the people in the world that have not learned about Jesus yep. and have died? Okay. So that's what we're going to close on right there. All right. So here's the answer. <clears throat> if somebody, no matter where they were, let's, let's, say, let's say they're in deepest, darkest jungles of Africa or wherever they are, had the inclination or the desire to know Jesus Christ, what do you think the chances are that God would make sure they heard the story? 100%. 100%. So here's what we understand and believe is that if anybody made any movement toward God, God would always respond by coming to them. But it's why we send missionaries. It's why we do what we do in India. It's why we go to some of those darkest parts of the world. Because guess who he sends? Us. Us. We're the ones entrusted with the gospel. We're the ones entrusted with his story. Us. Why are we part of a church that puts billboards up on the freeway or sends mailers out to people and invites them to come? Because you and I have this story, and people without this story are lost. And so we invite them to the room, okay? And then we not only do that, we go to their room. We go to India. We go to Kenya. We go to the places where people, if they have any intrigue at all in God, we want to be there to tell them because we believe God sends us. All right, great questions. All right. We're going to start it. Hey, I'm just telling you guys, the next part of chapter five is fun. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, it is just really, really cool stuff. So let's pray our way out of here and we'll be done. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thanks for a chance to get into your word. Thanks for great questions and stuff that made us just even go a little further in new areas that we hadn't even thought about. God, bring us back again uh, to go even deeper and further. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.